Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ben. Great, great to see all of you here this morning. Welcome this morning to North. Great to see you. I, uh, so one of, the, one of the things I was really looking forward to, one of the many things in moving back to Arizona that I was really looking forward to is not having to deal with the whole time change thing that happens. And those of you who have been living in Arizona for a while, like that doesn't even register probably for you. You didn't even probably realize that today was the day when you fall back an hour. And so I was looking forward to that as we got to Arizona, one of the many things, of course, of moving back. And uh, this morning, though, um, I rely on my Amazon Echo to wake me up, the alarm that's set there, and that Echo is still set to Oregon time. And so I overslept by an hour this morning, and which is great uh, because I got extra sleep, um, but at the same time, not great for my normal preparation schedule. So uh, this morning, you know, and, and here's the thing, is if the pastor's already making excuses about his sermon before he gets into it, you know, it might get a little dicey. So I'm just giving you a heads up this morning. Um, I'm rested, but maybe not as prepared as I I'd hope to be this morning, but I'm kind of kidding. I think uh, in reality, like in all of this, I'm really excited to continue our series. You know, we started last week our new series called Hidden Kingdom, Present King, where we are looking at the book of Esther together, and this is week two. Last week was an introduction for the book, and so we looked at three important aspects of context that are so critically important as we frame a book like the book of Esther, which relays to us events that happened basically 2,000 years ago and a place on the other side of the planet that many, many of us will probably never, ever visit. The question becomes, like, how is this applicable to us today? How is this relevant to us today? We know this is God's eternal word, but how does it apply to us today? The reality in all of this is that helping us understand that context was so important. So we looked at things like biblical context. Where does this fit in the story of the Bible? We looked at things like uh, theological context. How does a New Testament understanding this side of the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus impact our understanding of what's going on in these passages? And then finally, the um, historical context, which roots us in the original story so that we can understand more about what the author's saying and what the original audience would have heard and, understand, and understood. Excuse me. So I would encourage you, if you were not here with us last week, go download that audio on our website or uh, subscribe to our podcast, North Bible Church, um, wherever you get your podcast, you can find it there and listen to that because there's a lot of things that we covered last week that are essential for this book. So with that being said, we covered a lot of ground last week. So I do want to do a little bit of review for us this morning to help us as we get into Esther chapter two this morning. Here's some things that we really need to understand. First of all, again, the book of Esther takes place and records to us events that took place during, uh, during the exile time of the Old Testament. Specifically, we're talking about the years here in the book of Esther of about 483 B.C. to around 470 B.C. And as we open up the book of Esther, one thing that we see is that the Jews, God's people, are in exile under the Persian Empire. And the way that this whole thing played out is that about 100 years previous, I said 40 years, by the way, last week, so I'm sorry for that. I got my dates mixed up. It's 100 years previous, the, the southern kingdom of Israel had been conquered by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians took about 10,000 of the Jews back to Babylon in exile. And as the Babylonians were then conquered by the Persians, now the Persians are the ones who were ruling over the Jews in this book as we open and look at the first chapter here. We talked about last week King Xerxes and who he was. King Xerxes was uh, widely regarded as one of the greatest Persian kings throughout the Persian dynasty. He's known as Xerxes the Great, the King of Kings, all kinds of things. 
And we saw King Xerxes and who he was and what kind of how the author introduces us. And one of the things that we realized, one of the things that we saw is that in the midst of all this, King Xerxes is set up as really a representation of human kings and human governments in contrast to the kingdom of God that is flowing behind the scenes, that is working out behind the scenes. We talked about how that's why the author you know, opens up with chapter one. He wants us to see King Xerxes and really all that's going on in the kingdom from the palace perspective, but then also presents to us the reality that the kingdom of God, even though God is not mentioned in this entire book, he is the main character who is pushing all of the events forward. And as we get through the book, we see more and more evidence of the kingdom of God being present. As the title of our series says, present or hidden kingdom, present king. That kingdom starts out hidden at the beginning of the book, but becomes something that is more visible, and it's going to even start today as we get into Esther chapter 2, but it becomes more and more visible as we get through the book. And the most visible kingdom, which is where we start out in chapter 1, King Xerxes' kingdom, begins to fade into the background. Now, this is actually illustrated in, if we can get the slide up with the uh, with the artwork there. This is actually illustrated in our uh, series graphic. If you haven't noticed this yet, which kind of why would you? Because this really just kind of looks abstract. But at the same time, when you remove the words, you can see a little bit more of this. But this was created by our design team for this series. And Kat on our design team pr- uh, actually painted three or four different images of this. And we've used this image as our background. And as it goes through this series, though, what you're going to see is the image that's in the background emerge more and more and more as we go through. And that's the image, if you can't tell already, it's the image of a crown. And so as we move forward through this series from week to week, you'll see this crown be more and more uh, revealed as we go forward. And as we get into the end of Esther, the book of Esther, not only is it revealed as far as the kingdom goes, and it reminds us of this reality, but also we're going to be getting into Advent at the end of the, the book of Esther. And so we're focusing then on the king who has arrived in King Jesus at Christmas. And so I just, it's just a great reminder of this. It's another thing that adds to this reminder. And I just I love creative people and what they're able to do. I mean, this is just really cool. So hopefully as we go through this series, this is a reminder of where this story is ultimately leading us as you see that. So last week though, one last thing. One of the, we realized one of the theological hallmarks of the book is not just the contrast between kingdoms, But the challenge for each of us as we read this, as Esther and Mordecai were challenged at the time, and all of the other Jews who were in exile, to see how the kingdoms operate and how the kingdoms provide us with hope. In other words, how the kingdoms of this world or how the things that we may seek in this world provide us with things that look like hope, that ultimately we find they are false hope, versus the kingdom of God that provides us with true hope. And that's part of the struggle that's going on throughout this entire book. And as we're going to see Esther this morning introduced in chapter 2, the question then becomes, which place is Esther ultimately going to stake her claim in and stake her faith in? Is it the kingdom of the world or is it the kingdom of God? Where does she place her hope? And we looked at that last week as one of the hallmarks of this book. So with that being said, we're going to continue in Esther chapter 2 this morning. If you have your Bibles or devices or whatever it may be that you read off of, Chapter 2 is what we're going to look at. We're going to start in verse 1 here in just a minute. But when we, laughed, when we last left King Xerxes, he had just thrown a festival, a six-month-long festival, to rally support in all the provinces of the Persian Empire, to rally support for all the military leaders for this invasion of Greece that he was going to embark on. He got this idea that, you know, my, my, 
My empire, which stretches from India to northern Africa to eastern Europe, is not big enough. So the next empire over or the next nation over is Greece. So why don't we just go ahead and take them over as well? And so he calls all the military leaders throughout the entire empire to meet at his palace, and he tries to woo them into this idea of invading Greece. Now chapter 1 tells us how badly this goes by the end of it. By the end of it, Xerxes is completely drunk, and he makes this request of his wife, Queen Vashti, to come out and essentially do some kind of strip tease or something for the rest of the people who are there. So he's got all his buddies gathered, he calls her out, and she rejects his request. And so by the end of the chapter there, we see his reaction, he's embarrassed, he's upset, he's infuriated, and to make matters worse, he enacts this rather foolish edict throughout the Persian Empire that really takes out his frustration on the women throughout Persia. And what we see at the end of chapter one is a king who is embarrassed and who's frustrated and upset with what's just happened. Now, From the end of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2, a lot of history actually takes place. We're looking at about three or four years of history. And chapter 2 kind of hints at it, but it's helpful to actually kind of engage with some historical scholars at this point. There was a Greek scholar by the name of uh, Herodotus that tells us what has happened during this time. As bad as the festival went, Xerxes was still able to convince all the military leaders of the provinces to still invade Greece. This is what was known as the Greco-Persian War in history. And as we said last week, Xerxes and the Persian forces uh, end up being defeated by Greece in one of the greatest military upsets that has ever happened in military history. And so Xerxes returns back to the palace completely disheartened, embarrassed, and discouraged. And Herodotus tells us that when Xerxes returns from war, he's even more brutal, more heartless, and more desperate than he was before he left. And so he started doing things like handing out harsh punishments throughout the empire as a way of reasserting his authority over the empire. He took the wives and daughters of officials and slept with them as a way of really establishing his dominance. And when those things didn't work, he drank excessively to numb all of the rest of what he was experiencing. And so when we open up into chapter 2, we see this man who is completely defeated and completely unhinged. So chapter 2, verse 1, quite the setup, right? Chapter 2, verse 1 says this. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus, which if you weren't with us last week, Xerxes is Ahasuerus in my translation and some other translations. I'm reading from the ESV, but same, one and the same. King Ahasuerus had abated. He remembered Queen Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. When the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all of the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Now this pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, uh, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of, Sh- of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was, be- he, was, uh, bringing, uh, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. 
Now the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and, made, advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Now Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now let's stop there for a moment. When we open up the book of Esther, particularly in chapter 2, when we open this section up, this almost seems like a bit of a love story. In fact, if you squint, it almost seems like a love story. The king is upset about a lot of stuff that's going on, but the thing that he's most upset about is the fact that Queen Vashti is no longer there. Now, we don't know exactly why. We don't know if it's because he really loved her and he really misses her. We don't know if it was just because he misses the fact that he doesn't have a queen on the throne. We don't know if it's because he looks foolish as a king without a queen ruling uh, side by side. But for whatever reason, what's got Xerxes more upset than anything, it seems, is the fact that Vashti isn't there in the palace with him anymore. And his young attendants see, see what's going on. And in most cases, especially in the Old Testament, when you see the word young advisor, it usually is a precursor for saying this person's about to give bad advice. <laughs> it happens to the kings, and it happens in this case, I think, in some ways as well. And so the young advisor says to King Xerxes, hey, I know you're upset about Vashti, but here's the thing, man. You're the king of Persia. Xerxes the great, the king of kings. All you have to do is just put out an edict, grab all the young virgins from all over the kingdom and bring them to you. And as they come, all these hundreds of young virgins, you can try them out one by one and just decide which one you like, and she can be queen. As we play this out, this seems like a really, uh, it almost seems like a premise for a really bad season of The Bachelor, right? <laughs> Except it's worse than that, which is really saying something because The Bachelor is just awful. And uh, <laughs> I won't apologize for that. But in the midst of all of this, right, the king says, yeah, sounds like a great idea. And so the thing that's crazy about this, if you think a little bit more, this is a lot less of a love story, a lot less like The Bachelor, and a lot more like the movie Taken. Because what happens here is that these women, these young women, in many cases who are teenage girls, get taken by force out of their parents' home and forced to go to the palace and prepare to have one night with the king. And if they please the king, sexually and otherwise, he might pick them as the queen. Now, you might be saying at this point, well, that seems like a great opportunity. If you win, you get to be the queen of Persia. Which might be better than the alternative slightly, because the alternative was basically this. If you didn't win, you were destined to remain your entire, the entire rest of your life as a member of the, of the king's harem. You couldn't go back to your family, you couldn't leave the palace, you couldn't have kids, you couldn't get married, you couldn't raise your own family. You were destined with the other hundreds of women who were there to stay in the harem for the rest of your life and to know an existence that maybe if the king wanted you for a night at some point in the future, you might see him again. Other than that, 
you're there for the rest of your life. It was a humiliating and dehumanizing existence. And on top of that, Herodotus, the historian, tells us that in order for Xerxes to upkeep his harem, he castrated 500 young boys a year from this point forward so that they could take care of the women who were there in the harem. One man with an ego the size of Jupiter destroys the future generations of his kingdom out of his own selfishness. And look, I, I'm not trying to be crass when I give you all the grisly details of this, but I'm just trying to drive home the point that living life under a human king like this was to not have your fate determined by things like law and justice and human dignity and human rights, but to have it determined by the whims and the desires of a heartless and self-serving king. And again, I'll remind you that as this book sets this up for us, there's a contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. And this continues to play out as the author's point. Now, it's into this situation, after this picture has been painted for us by the author, that Esther is first introduced. We first meet Esther and Mordecai here in chapter 2. And what we're essentially told from the beginning is that Esther was just one of these girls. She's one of these girls. And she's swept up in this whole edict where all the young virgins have to go to the palace, and this is where we're introduced to her. Now, one of the things about the book of, of Esther that's been recognized not only by biblical scholars but also secular scholars is that it is an amazing work of literature. In fact, the author uses a lot of literary cues to cue us into some things that are really important that he's saying that maybe are kind of subtly expressed, and if we miss them, we might miss his point. But here's the thing, is that there are at least a few things that come out in his initial description of Esther that help to drive the story forward that I think are really important for us to make note of. First of all, the way that he introduces Esther and Mordecai, he deliberately uses the passive voice all the way through. In other words, Mordecai and Mordecai's family was taken out of Israel and into exile by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Esther was taken out of her home to be with Mordecai and then taken again by the king to go to his palace. Why is this significant? Well, it reinforces the idea again that although we interact with these human characters— whether it's Esther, Mordecai, Xerxes, or Haman. These are not the main characters of the story. The main character is the one who is not even mentioned himself, who is God, working everything out behind the scenes. That the characters who are in the midst of this, they're getting swept through by this redemptive story that God is bringing from beginning to end and all the way through. And the author doesn't want us to lose our focus on the fact that God is the focus this entire story through. We're not supposed to look at this, in other words, we're not supposed to look at the story and say, well, we should be like Esther, or we shouldn't be like Esther, or we should be like Mordecai, we shouldn't be like Mordecai. In fact, the author doesn't even give us insight into their motivations when they do certain things. But what he wants us to keep focused on is the fact that God is remaining faithful, because the question behind the exile this entire time for God's people is, is God going to fulfill his promises to us? Is God again going to bring his kingdom is he going to establish us as his people so the passive voice the second thing is the use of names throughout this book and especially here is critically important you notice that when the author introduces esther he introduces her first by her hebrew name hadassah and then for the rest of the book calls her esther which is actually a babylonian name 
What the author's doing to us is presenting to us the fact that Esther is a woman who is living in exile. She is a woman who is living in a place that is not necessarily her home. It's not Israel. But again, she's got her other foot in this other culture, and she's a woman who's caught between two worlds, two kingdoms, two kings. And the question, as we, as we kind of work through Esther's progression in this story, is which one is she going to choose? Which identity, which home is she going to root ourselves, herself in? Which king is she going to offer her allegiance to? King Xerxes in the kingdoms of this world, or God, Yahweh, who is king? And then finally, character development. Look, initially, we aren't told a lot about Esther. Again, in this chapter, we're just kind of told that, you know, she gets swept along with this edict. She begins to win the favor of people and those kinds of things, but we're not told a lot about her. We don't actually see her speak throughout this entire chapter. But one of the things that we realize is that, and one of the things that the original Jewish readers would have realized, is that she does a lot of things that are really questionable in terms of the law. In other words, and although Mordecai advises her to do this, she hides her identity as a Jew, which was a big no-no under Jewish law in the Old Testament. Because one of the things, in fact, one of the central things that God calls Israel to be is his holy people who are set apart for him. Through the prophet Ezekiel, we know that God says, I set you in the midst of nations so that the rest of the nations would know that you were mine. And so one of the big violations of the Old Testament law is actually denying your Jewishness or the fact that you are God's people. So this is a big problem. And the author repeats it, by the way, at the end of chapter 2 that we're going to read here in a minute. And it's no coincidence that the turning point of this book, and if you haven't read the story before, I'm sorry, but this is a little bit of a spoiler alert. The turning point of this book that happens in a couple of chapters for Esther is when she actually reveals that she is a Jew, that she's one of God's people. She starts out as kind of an overshadowed, weak figure, and she becomes strong at the end after she confesses that she is one of God's people. It's a huge turning point, and it's the character development that happens throughout this. Mordecai's the same way. He's a mess here, by the way. As I read this, I'm thinking to myself, why didn't you just get Esther out of the empire, man? If you know this is going to happen, you're her acting father. Get her out of there. There's a lot of questionable decisions that Mordecai makes throughout this as well, but we see Mordecai develop into a faithful man by the end of the book as well. Now, here's the thing. is that As we look at this and we engage with this, living life as an exile as we know, this is where this connects to our story. We talked about this last week. Living life in a world that's not ultimately your home, but trying to struggle through the moral ambiguity sometimes in the gray areas of life can be difficult to do. Anybody who's tried to follow Jesus in this world, seriously, you know that. It can be difficult. But in the midst of all of this, what we see is God's grace, not only around Esther and Mordecai, but also through Esther and Mordecai, transforming them and changing them throughout the story. They become more faithful people as they move forward, and it's all a credit to God's grace that's moving in behind the scenes. So that being said, let's continue in verse 12 here. Verse 12, in verse 12 we get a little bit of a circle back as the author kind of circles back and explains to us the really arduous process that goes into, that goes into a woman preparing herself to spend one night with the king. And it's really a crazy thing. It's almost one of those things that we wouldn't believe unless it was said here in God's word, and we have historical, actually, resources that back this up as well. But verse 12 says this. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of, of myrrh, 
and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Now in the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shasgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she, and she was summoned by name. So get this for a minute. What happens is that as the woman arrives there, she's prepared for six months in one way and six months in another way. She, in other words, an entire year of literally seasoning her body before she went in to meet with the king. This would consist of hours per day of a woman essentially crouching over burning oil with nothing but a robe to cover her that would soak in all the scent that would soak into her body for hours for six months every single day. And for six months after that, they would be lotion and oil and spices would be applied to their skin for six months every single day just before, all that before they could go in to meet with the king. And what you get here is just this picture of, I don't know, this picture, for me, I think about how oppressive that must be, how oppressive that must have felt to endure that every single day, all at the whims and the ego of this king. I mean, these women are literally slaves who are being treated like pieces of meat seasoned to be served up to the king. And then if the king doesn't like you, he banishes you to the second harem where maybe one day he might call you back or maybe not. That might be the end of it for you. Just live out the rest of your days like that. The oppression here is alarming. And it's an issue in all of this. It's so weighty and heavy. We continue in verse 19. It says this. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai uh, as when she was brought up by him. In those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuch who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now last week I mentioned that a lot of what happens throughout this book seem to be just kind of minor coincidences that turn into big issues that are foreshadowing things that are big time things that happen later on in the book. And this is probably an ultimate example of that. We're told that Mordecai's just kind of hanging out at the city gate, and he overhears these two eunuchs who are plotting an assassination attempt on the king, which apparently was was a a very common thing this time of the king's reign. As you can imagine, you take 500 boys and castrate them and throw them into your palace, some of them are probably going to get upset at you, right? And so two of them, at least, begin to conspire to try to assassinate the king. And on top of that, you know, the king's sleeping with officials, wives, and all the rest, Actually, King Xerxes, we know from history, was assassinated in his bedroom a few years later, probably from one of the officials whose wife he slept with, right? And so this is kind of what's going on there. But Mordecai hears this story. He reports it to Esther and says, Esther, tell the king what's about to happen. And Esther is careful, and the author is careful to tell us that she gives Mordecai the credit when she tells the king this is what's going on. This is foreshadowing and one of those coincidences where Mordecai just happens to overhear this conversation 
that sets things up for later so that Mordecai has favor with the king and it turns the tables, the turning point of this book, so that God has a way to preserve his people. Now, in all of this, I think when we get to the end of chapter 2, what we're set up for is this, not only this kind of contrast between kingdoms as we looked about last week, but this question about what does it mean to really live in these complicated situations. I mean, Mordecai and Esther face some really complicated situations. Sometimes they make faithful decisions. Sometimes they make unfaithful decisions. Sometimes their decisions just seem flat out dumb. But in the midst of it all, God is still working his grace in it all because it's a difficult thing to live as an exile. You've got Esther and Mordecai here trying to figure out what does it mean to live with one foot almost in each place. And what does it mean to live in this place knowing that I'm meant for something else? And that's where this story connects to us as Christ followers today. As exiles who are seeking to follow Jesus, waiting for the homecoming of our king, who will establish things the way that they're supposed to be established, there is heartache that we feel from the memory of a king and the memory of a home that we have lost, but we look forward to being redeemed and restored to us one day. How do we live in the midst of that when it seems like the kingdoms and the powers of this world are much more visible than the hidden kingdom of God that's working his purposes and promises behind the scenes, both in our world and in our lives? I want to show you, fortunately, we have a way that I want to show you an example of what this looks like. What does it look like for us to really live faithfully as exiles where we take seriously the fact that our home is not here, that this place is temporary, and we're meant for something else? Many of you may know that the Chinese church, the church in China, has been historically one of the most persecuted churches basically since uh, 1949 when the communist re regime, which is really atheist in its, in its origins and certainly actively persecuting the church uh, throughout those years. Uh, many of you know that for the past 70 years or so that the, the uh, Chinese church has been one of the most persecuted on the face of the planet. Well, what you may or may not know is that the Chinese church is also one of the fastest growing churches on the face of the planet in the face and in the environment of all of that persecution. So in other words, in 1949, there was a million Christians when the communist regime took over China. Seventy years later, there are more than a hundred million Christians that we can identify in the nation of China, and it might be a lot bigger because the underground church is huge there. So from one million to one hundred million actually represents the, the largest revival in terms of numbers that we've ever experienced in the history of the Christian church. And the question is, how does that happen? <laughs> How does that happen? How do these people live? It's one thing to live as an exile, not knowing, like, do I do this or do I do that? Do I make that moral decision or this moral decision? Do I engage with this media or that media? Which are some of the questions we often have. But it's a whole other thing to realize that if I live out my faith, I might be arrested or killed as a result. How does this happen? Well, I was reading recently a piece that was done uh, by an author, Paul Hathaway, who had spent a lot of time in the Chinese church, and he's kind of relaying some of his stories through this article. And he tells a lot of great stories. There are two that I want to encourage you with here this morning as we answer this question of what it means to live as an exile. In one, he tells a story about a group of house leaders who were essentially pastors of house churches there who were discovered and imprisoned by the government in a work camp. 
And there were several pastors who were put on this group together, and they were, they were given 18 hours of hard manual labor every single day, seven days a week. And after doing this for one week, the pastors started to realize that their bodies were failing them. The prison food wasn't good enough to sustain all the work that they had to commit to every single day. And one thing they realized is that it, it, it had no protein. That's the thing that they were lacking. And so they sat down and they just simply prayed to God, God, not get us out of this place, God, not, you know, strike down our captors, but just simply, God, will you provide us with protein so that we can get through the day tomorrow? As soon as they broke that first prayer, moments later they hear the scurrying of a large rat. This rat pops into their jail cell with a large chicken egg and rolls it right into the middle of the room. Every day for three weeks after that, the same rat came in at the same time of day, rolled a large egg into the middle of the room, and that protein was enough to sustain those several pastors for the three weeks they needed to until they eventually got out. Another story is told by Hathaway where he talks about 16 evangelists who decided they wanted to go out into the hill countries and into the farming villages of China. And at the first village they arrived in, they arrived in a village where the people who lived there were not too fond of outsiders, so they immediately started to mock and to harass these evangelists that had come to the town. They started beating them with sticks and throwing rocks at them and hurling insults and yelling at them to get out of their city. And so the evangelists sat down and they, they realized, you know, if, if God has not called us out of this place, we're just going to stay here. And for a period of time, they just prayed and fasted until each of them felt like God was just telling them to do one thing, go and wash the feet of the people in the village. So they set up foot washing stations at the entrance of the village so that as the farmers came back from the field, they would offer to wash their feet. Some of the farmers took them up on it while they still hurled insults at them and yelled at them. Others grabbed the buckets of water and dumped the foot water over the heads of the evangelists who were there. But for three years, every single day, these 16 evangelists went out in the middle of summer, in the middle of the harshness of winter, and washed the feet of the villagers and the farmers and just prayed for them silently. Three years into this, one day, an old man who was in the village couldn't take it anymore, and he just said to him, why are you doing this? I mean, don't you see, this is, first of all, this is one of the most humiliating things to wash people's dirty feet, and then don't you see how they're treating you? They're yelling at you, we don't want you in our village. Why would you do this? And one of the evangelists looks at the old man and he says, because Jesus, the Son of God, told us to do this. And as the story goes, the old man was struck in that moment with such conviction that he gave his life to Jesus on the spot, which opened the spiritual floodgates for that village and the surrounding villages so that within the next three weeks, 1,500 people came to faith in Christ. And then as best as we can track it, those 15 people have led over 30,000, somewhere between 30,000 and 50,000 other people to Christ as a result of that. One of the pastors, one of the Chinese pastors who was arrested last year said this, separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. But Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I will resist in meekness those who resist God, and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. Now look, 
I had to tell you, as I read this, I'm thinking to myself, in some ways this seems like another planet. Because we don't see things like this necessarily happening in the American church. And part of this is convicting to me. I think to myself, how in the world is this happening? It's almost too much to believe. How could this happen? I want to share one more quick short story with you that I think answers that question. Hadaway tells one more story about his time worshiping with the Chinese church. And he said from time to time he would engage in the prayer meetings that the Chinese leaders would have there and the Chinese believers would have. And he said basically it was just a bunch of people gathered in a room on a hard, cold floor and we would, we would be on our knees for hours at a time just crying out and praying to God. So one day, the one experience in particular stands out to me because as I was kneeling, as we had done many times, I noticed and I realized that my knees were starting to get really wet. And I immediately assumed that there was some kind of leak in the plumbing or something, and so I looked down and I began to realize that the floor was completely soaked with the tears of the Chinese believers who were praying in that room. That's That's it. The desperation that these believers had for their king. People living with the real world question every single day. What does it look like for us to live as exiles, as people who look forward to another place that is coming and look forward to a kingdom? The desperation and the joy that they showed just being in the presence of their king. Now, this morning, in a minute, We're going to respond by taking communion together. But one of the things that we realize on the last night of Jesus' time with his disciples before his death, he was in the upper room and he did some remarkable things to teach them and and to help them remember what it meant to follow him and to be in fellowship with him. He washed their feet. He enjoyed the Passover meal with them and pointed to the fact that he would be the ultimate Passover lamb the next day. He prayed for them and prayed for all believers who would come after them. And then he established what we know as the Lord's Supper or communion. And he said to them essentially this, my body has been given, my body will be given and broken on the cross tomorrow. My blood will be given for the forgiveness of sins and for the sealing of the covenant that brings you back in reconciliation to the Father. That these basic reminders that are so tangible as we take them are reminders of the fact that we are completely desperate for the grace of God to bring us back in reconciliation to our Father and King. And for each of us who are in Christ, we are guaranteed that in Christ we have an engraved nameplate at that table with our eternal Father and our eternal King. And that at that table we're promised flourishing, At that table, we're promised wholeness. At that that table, we are promised nourishment for our souls that goes beyond our wildest dreams. The satisfaction of everything that we ache for as we wait for the kingdom to be restored. This morning, I want to encourage you, if you are a believer in Jesus, and if that is your story, if he is your king, We want to invite you to make your way over to one of the response stations here in just a couple of minutes and to take the elements of communion with the same kind of acknowledgement and understanding that 
We are desperate for this. This is the thing that we need the most. It's the thing that we are most desperate for, and it's been given to us freely by the grace of Jesus Christ. And then as we stumble through this world at times, sometimes making unfaithful decisions, faithful decisions, just outright dumb decisions, as we stumble through the gray areas of life, trying to work out what it means to follow Jesus as an exile, his grace covers our life. And he tells us repeatedly, you are welcome here at this table. I want to pray for us this morning, and when I'm done praying, we'll invite you to go and take the elements. You can take them on your own. You can take them with other family members or friends. The band's going to lead us in a couple of songs, so you have plenty of time just to kind of breathe and take in this moment if you need to, to pray on your own, to make it be a time of worship for you. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at your grace and mercy. Lord, I when we think about what it means for us to sit at the table of the God of the universe, we admit that those thoughts are too high for us to comprehend. But Lord, we take by faith these elements knowing that you have promised, Lord Jesus, that you are the bread of life that satisfies our souls and that your blood covers all our sin. We are brought back, reconciled with our Heavenly Father who has loved us when He created us and He loved us when He redeemed us. He is the lover of our souls and the one who calls us homeward even as we live in a foreign place. So Lord, as we take the elements this morning, may it be a reminder for us, just as you told the disciples on that night 2,000 years ago in that upper room, May we do this in remembrance of the one, the king, who has laid down his life for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. So I realize at times um, I can be really intense and overbearing. <laughs> I realize that sometimes that comes off as, you know, God's angry at you this morning. And I want to make sure that this morning you know that as we struggle through life and as we move through these areas stumbling, that God's grace is there with you. He sees it. He knows it. He knows how difficult it is to live in a world that's so broken and that's why his grace is there for you to meet you in that place. And so, if you hear anything this morning, hear that. And know that the grace of God goes with you through Jesus Christ and his spirit as you leave this place. This morning, um, I believe maybe we have our prayer partners with us. I'm so bad at doing this. But our prayer partners, if you're here this morning, if you need prayer after the service, we'll have our prayer partners available. And here on, the, uh, on the, my left-hand side or your right-hand side. If not, you can drop a prayer request at our table in the back, and we pray over those things as staff. 
We pray over all those requests at staff meeting on Monday. They go out to our elders and our prayer teams and they pray for them as well. And so be encouraged that we are with you and we have the privilege, we consider it a privilege to join with you in prayer. And so as you leave this morning, know that you are loved and know that the grace of God goes with you. You're dismissed. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.